This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is a recurring guest, and it's Carla Yanni to talk about her book, The Architecture of Madness, Insane Asylums in the United States. Carla is a distinguished professor of architectural histories at at Rutgers and the second VP of the Society of Architectural Historians. Carla, thank you very much for being here again and talking again. Welcome again. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So it's been over, I believe, over a year now. So before we start, could you tell the audience a little bit uh, about yourself? Sure. I'm a professor of architectural history in the art history department at Rutgers. I'm the author of three books. Uh, One of them is about the architecture of 19th century science museums in Britain. And one is about the architecture of psychiatric hospitals in the 19th century in the United States. That's the one we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And my most recent book is about the architecture of college residence halls. So overall, I'm interested in how buildings uh, carry meaning for the people who use them and live in them and work in them. I'm a social historian. So Uh, One of the things that ties my books together is I do a lot of archival research and I'm interested in the way buildings work in society. Absolutely. And of course, I'm actually going to reference our our last book we spoke about, which was the college one a few times. So So an interesting statistic that's right in the beginning of the book and something that I personally wasn't aware of, and that is you know, before 1900, there was over 300 asylum buildings built, which, of course, they're all expensive. They're all big. And so to me, that's very startling because that's not nearly the case nowadays. And so, of course, right. the book is, is very... I'm sorry. Go ahead. It is startling. And um, it really makes uh, you think about the fact that in the 19th century in the United States, doctors benefited from building these large public structures. Um, There's one author, Nancy Toms, who says the asylum was the psychiatrist's greatest asset. In other words, it was prestigious for doctors to build these large hospitals. And running a large psychiatric hospital was what psychiatrists did in the 19th century. 
and states were willing to build these large, elaborate structures with complicated plans. And some of them housed as many as 800 patients right from the get-go. And they did that because they honestly, I think honestly, believed that the architecture was part of the cure and that living in a purpose-built psychiatric hospital would encourage people with disordered minds to become orderly. So if there's that much faith that the building is working as a means of therapy, then people would build more and more of them. And it's an interesting thought, again, with my own bias as a practicing architect, it's interesting to hear that at one time, you know, architecture was considered vital to a cure. I, I personally don't think I've never heard of architecture ever being that important again in history, at least in the mind of the public. Well, I, I, in the book, I place it in the context of what uh, I call and other writers have called environmental determinism. The idea that the environment shapes behavior. Uh, and, and you can find that in 19th century uh, park ref- uh, urban reformers or the building of Central Park or um, certainly K through 12 schools or any kind of um, uh, argument that if you, if you build a beautiful park, the impoverished people living in the city will have a chance to get out of their crowded apartments and go into the park, commune with nature, um, get out of their crowded, dank streets, maybe look up and see the sky, and that 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 environment would be therapeutic. So the case of the 19th century psychiatric hospital is an extreme version of that same kind of argument where the environment, including architecture, would not only shape behavior, but actually cure a disease. And so, you know, you had mentioned that it's the, you know, it was, these buildings were seen as the greatest asset. And so again, I, I won't quiz on too many statistics, but another one I found very interesting was the fact that during this time, I, I think it's something like 70 to 90% of insanity cases were seen as curable conditions, not mental illnesses, if I'm understanding correctly. Yes, that's correct. So uh, at various points during the 19th century, the doctors, and interestingly, they were called asylum doctors. So the name of the building type is built into their job title. The asylum doctors who formed a professional society and they had a journal where they published their ideas. We know a lot about what they thought and what they believed about what they were doing. And they argued that if mental illness was caught early enough and treated in a specially designed building, it was curable at rates of 70, 80, 90%. There was even one doctor who claimed 100% cure rate. Now, quickly, it became clear that that wasn't true. But that was what they claimed during the heyday of these large congregate hospitals. And by congregate, I just mean, you know, lots of people under one roof. Right. And I'd like to circle back to the idea of congregate versus segregate hospital. But you kind of, and he'll be a bit, this will be a bit of a leading question. You just mentioned, you know, reading things based on what they felt in their opinion. And so 
I think you had mentioned something like this in your last book, but the, when you're searching through archives and unable to interview living participants, my understanding is you run into a bit of a challenge, and that is every doctor, administrator, and builder kind of had a very strong, optimistic outlook and possibly was a little bit misleading onto how these were actually being run and how effective they were? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, uh, it's, it's a truism about history that it's easiest to find the documents uh, from the people in power, right? So the doctors, they wrote articles and they left notebooks and they gave public talks and they... Um, they met annually in their notes from their meetings. Um, so we know what they claimed they were doing. And um, we know less about the architect's intentions, although these are such enormous buildings that they tended to be covered in the architectural press. The, but then, as now, people push back against the intentions of both doctors and architects. So... Doctors might say, well, you know, we need a you know, we need a particular type of window or we need a particular type of 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 ward, but we don't actually know that that they were used in the way the doctors thought they would be. And it's it's very difficult, you know, to construct a large state funded building is already a challenge, but there was never any money for maintenance. So they were building gigantic buildings, crowding them full of patients. Patients were not getting better and the buildings were not being maintained. So whatever the architect's intentions were, they were not carried out. And unfortunately, it's a sad story I, I hear from a lot of different subjects and architects. And it's funny you mentioned maintenance. I personally grew up near Buffalo. And so there's a lot of really good case studies in here, but the one that I am the most familiar with, and I think you make a case that most people are familiar with, is the Buffalo Insane Asylum, mainly because of its famous architect. You know, Olmsted was the landscape designer. Richardson did the building itself. And yet, despite it being so cutting edge, expensive, and grandiose, and during my lifetime and childhood, it was a derelict building that nobody knew what they could do with. Yeah, me too. That's exactly my relationship to the Buffalo State Hospital, because I grew up in Rochester, and I wrote my undergraduate honors thesis on the Buffalo State Hospital for the Insane. So um, I've been thinking about it for a long time. And exactly, it was this, this um, uh, behemoth, empty, uh, it um, wasn't at all clear what would happen to it. So it's nice that I've been able to see it, at least part of it saved and part of it turned into a hotel. And that's that's been a pleasure. And I've, I've known a lot of the people who work very hard to make that come to pass. But it's it's the it, it, it's it's helpful that Olmsted and Richardson's names are attached to that building. And it's helpful that Buffalo is a city that is proud of its architectural heritage. That's not the case for a lot of other buildings. Yes. <laughs> Many of them were in small towns to begin with, and that makes it even harder. Yeah, and of course, that was where I was going to go with next. You know, you mentioned it towards the end of the book. Again, that's a building many people are familiar with because it has so much star power behind it, but a, a large percentage of these buildings don't have that. 
And so from what I could gather, is it correct to say that most of them have been demolished or completely abandoned for the most part? Uh, most. I think most is, is correct. I don't know the exact numbers. It's easier for me to account for the ones that I know are still standing. There's one in Athens, Ohio, uh, that has been partly repurposed. There's uh, the one in, um, that's called the Trans-Allegheny Psychiatric Hospital in West Virginia that is now a paranormal ghost tourist attraction. That makes me pretty uncomfortable since I think it has the danger of making light of the real suffering that took place in these buildings. On the other hand, that building's still standing and the one in New Jersey, close to me, in Morristown was demolished just a few years ago. I, I, I would agree with you. And so this, I don't have a better segue. Uh, earlier you had mentioned congregate, and I do think it's worth really quickly for the listeners, because the, again, there's a lot of great case studies, but there's a bit of a, kind of a separation of those two building types and what was popular at the time. So if you could briefly elaborate on us for us, you know, congregate housing versus segregate housing. Sure. So when the... The leading asylum doctors, and the most famous one is is Thomas Story Kirkbride. In fact, sometimes the the larger of these buildings, the ones that have uh, a plan that looks like a row of birds in flight, Kirkbride's the name that's associated with those. Sometimes they're actually just called Kirkbride Plan Asylums or just Kirkbrides. He argued for a hospital with 250 beds that would be surrounded by a picturesque landscape garden. Every patient would have a view out the window to a beautiful um, garden. The men would be on one side of the central pavilion and women would be on the other side of the central pavilion. The asylum superintendent and his family would live in the central pavilion and there would also be a chapel in the central pavilion. And that was the kind of standard Kirkbride plan hospital, which would have placed 250 people under one roof. Uh, the, and that was the pattern that was followed, except for an outlier in 19th century psychiatry named John Galt, who worked at the Eastern uh, State Lunatic Asylum in Virginia. And Galt had visited a town in Belgium called Hale. And in this town, the townspeople took care of mentally ill people who came there since the Middle Ages because a miracle had occurred there where an insane person had been set to rights in a miraculous event. And people thought if they went to this town, they could have the same kind of convergent experience. And So the townspeople in Hale kind of got used to having people around. By the 19th century, when Galt went there, the Belgian state had codified this relationship. And the Belgian state was actually paying farmers to kind of take care of or house mentally ill patients. And so John Galt thought, well, that's great. It's a kind of care in the community. It's much more like being a regular person in society if you can actually live in society and live with people. And Galt said, you know, I'm here and there are people at the pub having a drink and it, no one even notices them. So his 
But his fellow doctors back in the United States found this abhorrent. Uh, farmers were not doctors. Farmers didn't have any expertise. They didn't know how to take care of mentally ill people. There was no guarantee that the farmers weren't just using the patients for labor. There was no guarantee they weren't um, uh, you know, ignoring them or neglecting them. And the houses were not anything special. They weren't fireproof. There wasn't a beautiful picturesque landscape garden. So, the, you know, the envir environmental determinism couldn't work if you're just taking somebody and having them live in a farmhouse. So Galt and his, and Kirkbride, let's say, to simplify the story, were at odds over this issue. When, when Galt's ideas got um, disseminated more broadly in the United States, it turned into something much more palatable to a 19th century art audience, which was to have mentally ill people live in cottages on the premises of a psychiatric hospital. So they weren't actually out in the community. They were in cottages. And so that was sometimes called the cottage plan uh, as opposed to the congregate plan. And then there were a lot of state hospitals that had one of each. You know, they might have one linear plan or Kirkbride plan hospital for the most violent or difficult patients. And then what they would have called in the 19th century docile patients would be in the cottages. Great. And of course, for those who are listening that can't see the book at the moment, there's a lot of great diagrams and plans to kind of talk about the different typologies. And so one thing while I was looking through, and I, I did not want to spend a lot of time in this interview talking about the other book we talked about. However, the first thing that struck me is you had mentioned sometimes the architect's vision wasn't carried through, but there's a couple things that were very clear, and that is the idea of social control, surveillance, and separating genders. And so, of course, this comes right back to the last time we spoke, and that these are very similar to college dormitories, at least from my opinion. Yeah, exactly right. Um, the the idea to write a book on college dormitories came out of my research on psychiatric hospitals. And you can insert whatever jokes you want there about students and madmen and whatever else. But yeah, no, any, anytime you have a large communal building, you have issues of fireproofing, uh, separating the genders, surveillance, um, preventing the spread of disease, ventilation, uh, and all of those issues, obviously, Preventing the spread of disease seems more relevant now than yeah, perhaps yes. it did two years ago. <laughs> um, all of those things link college dorms and psychiatric hospitals. And some of the same architects in the 19th century built college dorms and also built psychiatric hospitals. And in the history of women's colleges, they even use the terminology cottage plan. So when I was writing my book on the asylums, many people referred me to a book um, by Helen Horowitz about called Alma Mater, which is about design and experience in women's colleges. And, and Professor Horowitz talks about the, the way that the cottage plan was suited to women's colleges because although these were women who were getting a bachelor's degree, they were enrolled in higher education, the expectation was still that they would become wives and mothers, and therefore they shouldn't be living in a giant congregate building with a bunch of other women. 
because that was unnatural, they should be, I mean, in, in scare quotes or in the language of the day, it was unnatural, and that they should be living in cottages because cottages are more like houses, more domestic. Absolutely. And so where I wanted to go with that next was, you know, I think something that's very interesting that I actually wanted to get your opinion on for asylums, because I'm not very familiar with a lot of asylums, the idea, and I think you have a good case study on the uh, the Panopticon building, the idea that there was a central element that someone could watch all the cells, but even if that person wasn't there, there was the idea of self-policing as an inmate might think there's someone in there watching them. And so I, of course, I'm more familiar with college campuses. I, I can state that a lot of students don't self-police themselves. But I guess the question I have is, was there success with this with asylums? Um, no, no. The answer is no. So, okay. <laughs> um, so the concept behind the Panopticon, and I think many people, many of your listeners are probably more familiar with the Panopticon from reading Foucault or from hearing the, the term used whenever anyone wants to talk about the surveillance state or the police state, they'll say, oh, it's a panopticon. And the idea of that is that the prisoner internalizes the system of control because the prisoner believes he's being watched, whether he is or not. The, the original inventor of the panopticon was Jeremy Bentham, the utilitarian philosopher. And Bentham actually said that it doesn't matter whether there's a person in the guard tower. You could put a mannequin in the guard tower and the prisoner doesn't know. So the, the prisoner doesn't know if he's being watched and therefore he polices himself, as you just said. Um, that wasn't even true in other 19th century prisons. In, in radial plan prisons, the guards couldn't actually see into the cell. Like, for example, at Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, they could see if you escaped from your cell and were standing in one of those long corridors, but they couldn't actually see you. They could see you if, if you went into your exercise yard, but the prisoners in Eastern State were only in their exercise yards one hour a day, half an hour in the morning and half an hour in the afternoon. So it's a different mechanism of surveillance. And then... The next level mechanism of surveillance is the psychiatric hospital, where surveillance is definitely a serious matter. And the most, the patients who were considered most dangerous were, if the hospital could afford to build one, kept in what they called refractory wards. And a refractory ward had a single loaded corridor. So that means a corridor and rooms on one side. Double loaded corridor would be a corridor and rooms on two sides. So the single loaded corridor meant that the attendant or the nurse could walk down the hallway and never have to turn her back or his back on any of the patients. So the single loaded corridor was considered safer and better for more dangerous patients. But they were expensive, so there are not that many of them. Even in a double loaded corridor, though, um, there were supposed to be attendants around these patients all the time. The patients did not spend all day in their bedrooms. In fact, they weren't allowed in their bedrooms for most of the day. Um, the, they spent most of the day in the day room, up and down the corridor, uh, maybe going to special events if there was a concert or something like that, going to church on a Sunday. Um, most of their lives were lived on a single floor of this giant building 
with attendance and they went for daily walks in the grounds. Those those walks in the grounds, they would have had attendance with them as well. Oh, so then the next level would be the college dormitory. And that's even less for men. It's less, there's less surveillance than a psychiatric hospital, but for women, there's more, there's more surveillance. So I wrote in my book on, on, on residence halls about the way that women's dormitories tended to have a single entrance, a desk right near the entrance, somebody who could keep an eye on the door, and then they tend to be corridors upstairs. Right. Thank you for that. And so, of course, just like last time, there's, there's so much more that you know, we just won't be able to get to unless you want to talk to me all weekend. But uh, what I wanted to talk about is kind of the closing of the book. And I'll, of course, I'm going to be paraphrasing here, but I, if I, unless I misunderstand, you bring up a very good point, and that is what's very interesting about this subject matter in particular is you know most of the maladies of the 1900s have been made trivial. You, you mentioned you know scurvy. Nobody has scurvy anymore. You know all the different medical items have been dealt with, whereas this is not the case with mental illness. It hasn't gone away, and in fact, I don't have the numbers, but I think it could be argued that it's just as severe or even worse nowadays, specifically with some recent events, but. I think that's an interesting point made. And of course, the number of asylums has not been increased like it was in the 1900s. I think it's been drastically decreased. I guess I want to make sure I'm not misunderstanding anything there. No, that's all. That's all correct. Yeah. And yeah. so, the, and so, of course, I do have a question with that. Yes. And so the overall question I have is, and of course, you said it's all kind of lead into it a little bit, but you had mentioned that, of course, architecture matters, you know. But the, the real reality is that architecture doesn't seem to have been the cure. It's more about the staff and the medical field itself. Mm, yeah. Well, you know, it's very, it, it's hard to compare the care of mentally ill people before psychotropic drugs to the care of people after psychotropic drugs. And the promise of psychotropic drugs, like, uh, you know, some of the first ones that came out in the 60s. It, it's a, It's been a rough road. You know, some of them don't work for everybody. Some of them have horrible side effects. Many patients don't want to take their medicines for all different kinds of reasons. Sometimes elderly people are over-medicated and given very powerful drugs for schizophrenia when they don't have schizophrenia. Um, so the story of the 20th century was supposed to be, oh, you know, in the 1960s or the beginning of the 1970s, oh, look, we have these drugs. We won't need to keep building psychiatric hospitals because people will be treated in the community and the state hospitals had become magnets for criticism, and horrible things indeed did happen in state hospitals. They were underfunded, they were crowded, uh, the attendants were not vetted carefully. Um, and I've been in state hospitals doing research for this book, and it's harrowing. But there's another piece of this, which is that residential care has become a luxury for the very rich. Uh, Poor people, well, if you have insurance, insurance will only cover a patient for the time period that they're most agitated. As soon as they say they're not going to harm anyone else and they're not going to harm themselves, they're released. 
they go back to the house that they came from, where their parents or sisters or children are no more capable of caring for them than they were before they were hospitalized. Um, I think there's actually a need for long-term residential care for the mentally ill, but there's nobody in American society willing to pay for it. I think that's a very good point. Unfortunately, I, I wouldn't know how to even begin to address that, but... Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And so, and now again, of course, I, I did not mean to end us on such a downer a little bit. So I, a question I do have, though, is, of course, you've, you've already talked to, not only did I talk to you about your book on college buildings, but between this and the third building you had mentioned, you clearly have an interest in building typology. And so I guess the question I, I, I often ask, you know, what project have you been working on since the books came out? I think I asked you that last time. So the question I have is, are there any more building type studies coming in the future? <laughs> well, no, because I decided I couldn't write another building type study. All right? okay. um, um, much as I, I, it's kind of the way my mind works. And I, I really do like building type studies because I like looking at architects trying to solve similar problems in different contexts and in different time periods and with different clients and di with different amounts of money. And I, I really like to look at architecture, not from the point of view of the individual genius, but from the point of view of a sort of slice across society. Um, so for my next book, I'm doing something which is very different for me, which is I'm, I'm, I'm looking at an understudied architecture firm, uh, Rap, Rap, and Hendrickson. Also, there was also Rap, Rap, and Bulger. They were based in Colorado and New Mexico. And they were some of the earliest inventors of the so-called Santa Fe style. But they also built, in every other 19th century style, Gothic Revival, Romanesque Revival, uh, little um, sort of uh, shingle-style houses and little classical libraries. Uh, and then, but they, they lasted long enough to see their own early work kind of wiped out by the Santa Fe style. So I'm interested in the kind of arc of that, like of that, um, that architecture firm. And then I'm really interested in uh, the, the way that in New Mexico, especially, Anglo architects imagined that Pueblo Indians were sort of the beneficiaries of American civilization, while at the same time lamenting the loss of what they thought of as Indians, you know, timeless and authentic artistry. And there's so much written about Pueblo craft and Pueblo um, painting, but there's very little written about Pueblo architecture. So uh, Anglos had this kind of almost caricatured understanding of the Pueblo architecture they were copying. And I want to figure out what the role of indigenous knowledge was in transferring that knowledge to archaeologists and then from the archaeologists to the architects. So that's what I'm working on now, but I'm just at the beginning of that. Hmm. Interesting. It does sound like a departure, but very interesting. Thank you. Well, I want to, well, perhaps in the future we can speak again. Oh, that'd be wonderful. So I do want to thank you again for, for being back on the show. My pleasure.
And for everyone listening, the book is The Architecture of Madness, Insane Asylums in the United States. Thank you very much for listening and have a great day. Thanks again.